Food poverty is a real issue here, and food security. In this province, for kids under five, about 34% of them have stunting because they're not meeting the basic nutrition requirements. It's, you know, you want to, you want to cry and burst into tears sometimes when you, when you just realize what people have to go through. Yet, the people in this country, that, you know, they will always welcome you with a smile and, you know, whatever their circumstances. Dirty Linen continues to travel the world. We just have to get out of lockdown in Melbourne, Australia, occasionally. And today we are heading all the way over to Johannesburg in South Africa to talk to one of the OG food bloggers, Ed Charles. Ed, welcome to Dirty Linen. And welcome to Johannesburg in its third week of a four-week lockdown. Well, from one lockdown to another, we can contrast and compare. Um, I followed the situation in South Africa a little bit um, through the pandemic. It's certainly been really dramatic and distressing in so many different ways. Do you want to just give us a little bit of an outline on what things are like at the moment? Yeah, well, first of all, you need to understand the um, demographic of South Africa. So really, it's very hard to control. You've got a population of about 59 million, about 48 million of those people are black people, and 30 million of those people live below the poverty line, often in townships, in small two-bedroom government houses, or in shacks. And those people can't self-isolate. So we've had a huge number of cases. Totally, according to the official statistics, 2.3 million and 67,000 deaths. But our excess deaths of about 180,000 indicate it's much larger than that. And according to the blood bank, about 47, they've extrapolated and about 47% of people have um, had COVID, they reckon. Wow, that's yeah. Those numbers are really shocking and and yeah, just just awful. And I mean, given what you said about the, the you know the structure of society there, is that burden um, resting mostly on the black community? Yes, it is. I mean, there's about five million white people in this country. We live in absolute luxury, most of us. Maybe there's about a one percent poverty rate there. And we, you know, houses are bigger than Australia. Um, it really does rest on black people and other ethnic minorities. And right now we're in the third wave. In you're going to have to excuse my pronunciation because I'm terrible at Afrikaans and I'm probably a little bit better in Zulu. But we've had in Gauteng, per capita, we've been worse than India. Our hospitals have been full. People have been treated in car parks. And if you go onto local WhatsApp and Facebook groups, people are desperate to get oxygen at home. It's been, you know, it's been quite horrible. And actually, we're starting to know people now who have been directly affected by it. Our two neighbors were affected. The vet down the road, who's closed his practice because of COVID during this lockdown. A very good friend of mine spent 10 days in hospital. My partner, Pam, a colleague of hers, his wife died last week. She was 39 years old. Gosh. Yeah, it's really, really awful. I mean, it, it, in a way, it sort of reflects the Indian experience in the sense that um, the third wave 
um, is the one that where it's not just the poor people. It's um, mm. it leaks into every sector of society, um, yeah. and you know, in, in India's recent wave, uh, yeah, it's you know, even the rich people can't get oxygen. Yeah, and it's it's the same here. But there is good news. This week we had our biggest ever day of vaccinations, which is about two hundred and thirty thousand. So we're getting there and a lot of people are helping um, poor people who don't have phones or access to the internet to register or they can go to libraries and register. So it is getting better. But, you know, we've got other issues here which are making it worse. And one is an attempted insurrection last week. Yeah, so tell me about that. So around the um, previous president, Jacob Zuma's, arrest and yeah. imprisonment so he's been uh, jailed on awaiting charges of corruption like historical um, charges he's, a, he's, he's awaiting those um charges of corruption but he was arrested and, and um put into prison for contempt of court so uh, okay. he set up a, an, an inquiry into corruption and then he refused to appear and give evidence which is why He's in prison. He went. It went all the way to the Constitutional Court, which is the highest level of court in the country, and they sentenced him to 15 months. Now, Jacob Zuma is a hero for many people in this country because he's one of the freedom fighters, the head of intelligence for the ANC that helped um, bring down the apartheid regime. But he also was very corrupt and basically sold the country in what's called state capture. And in K- KZN, Kuala Natal, um, it's his stronghold of power. That's where the Zulu nation is based. There's about 11 million Zulus in the country. Um, and there's a power vacuum in the Zulu nation after the Zulu king died and there's a new one appointed. And basically, the Zuma supporters, including his former head of intelligence for the country, instigated looting and riots. They burnt uh, trucks and blocked the main supply route between KZN and Johannesburg. They set fire to cold storage warehouses and other warehouses and businesses they associated with white monopoly capital. Um, supermarkets, one supermarket chain lost, I think, 140 stores were closed down. 50,000 informal businesses have been affected. Um, Basically, Durban was closed down, including the port, fuel refineries, petrol stations. Supermarkets were looted, so nobody had food. And they've been a lot of charities who've been sending food down from Johannesburg just so normal people can eat, let alone poor people. It's been pretty horrendous. It then spread to Johannesburg, uh, mainly in the townships where they've been huge queues for food because the supermarkets were looted. In the really affluent region of um, or area of Santon, which is, you know, it's a lot of posh people, a lot of middle class black people there, the really all the supermarkets were emptied out because people thought they were going to be murdered in their beds and they had to lock down. And where we live in the West Rand, a local politician who's running for mayor was inciting violence and is um, has been arrested. And um, you know, is I thought the reaction of my neighbours and the security services locally was a bit over the top. But then you think about it, they were, they were targeting shopping centres and bottle shops, which are closed because we've got an alcohol ban again for the fourth time. And, you know, it could have been quite scary here. 
Well, I mean, it actually does sound incredibly scary already. It's just sounds, mm. it sounds dreadful. Like the, the, yeah, the basis of the, the structure of society is just being dismantled violently. Um, yeah. In front of you. And yeah, I mean, my power went out today for two hours and I was freaking out. Um, I just, mm. yeah, I just can't imagine how distressing that all is to try to get well, your head around. Well, you know, we have regular rolling two-hour blackouts um, when when there's too much stress on the electrical grid and regularly the infrastructure breaks for either power or water. So, you know, if you're running a business, unless you've got a generator or an alternative water supply, it can be impossible. And there are many people who live in shacks who don't really have access to a water apart from a standpipe or have a toilet in their house. You know, it's, it's the size of a you know, two beds often where you might have a whole family living and um, somehow have electricity. Um, yeah, we, we've actually put solar power in and we've got water tanks so we can sort of survive off grid. But it's, it, it's, it's not good. And also there's a history of um, violent protest here. It's not nice protests like you get in Australia. So when black people want to protest, they burn piles of tires in the middle of the street. Um, just a, a township near us only a few weeks ago, they, um, a, they necklaced ten, nine young guys who'd been stealing phones and things from the residents there. That means they set fire to them and killed them. You know, there's, there's, there's a history of violence and it's a bit of a tinderbox around here, so it doesn't take much to set it alight. And as studies in the UK have shown that uh, riots are contagious. So they start in one place and they spread very easily unless you sort of get, unless, you know, with, you have stringent policing and just stop them. Mm. And I guess the, this, like the social dislocation that's caused by the pandemic that then spills into despair and rioting and anger and then, you know, it also helps yeah. to, to um, fuel the pandemic further. So food poverty is a real issue here and food security. So off, during the pandemic, um, there were some government payments to people who lost their jobs or were unemployed. That was $35 a month. The food basket here, the average food basket, is about $40 a month. And in this province, for kids under five, about 34% of them have stunting because they're not meeting the basic nutrition requirements. It's, you know, you want to, you want to cry and burst into tears sometimes when you, when you just realize what people have to go through. Yet the people in this country that, you know, they will always welcome you with a smile and, you know, whatever their circumstances. It's, um, it's, a, it's a really complex place, South Africa, and I've only been there briefly and I only went to Johannesburg and around there. But I suppose one thing that really struck me, I mean, it's, you, you cannot help but be struck by the inequality and, you know, every society, well, it's a rare society, I don't know of any that are really equal, but the inequality yeah. in South Africa is very much in your face. And, you know, as a, as a white person there, you know, under privileged circumstances, I was mostly um, hanging out in 
big houses, gated communities, um, yeah. doors that lock as soon as you get in a car. Um, it Absolutely. was all very security conscious. Um, but, of course, mm. people only feel the need to do that because, yeah, the society is so unequal and the people that are yeah. at the bottom of that um, chain are, you know, understandably often quite desperate to change their circumstances, even if only in the immediate. There are. And there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of crime as a result. Not everybody's a criminal. I mean, the majority of people aren't. And, you know, sometimes I'm actually quite disgusted by what some of the people in our local WhatsApp group say in terms of being racist and racial profiling. But also they behave like, you know, people are going to come and murder them in their beds, which is not going to happen. You know, there's no exaggeration and a mass hysteria here. And one of the things to remember about this country is we still have the apartheid spatial planning. They created these townships so white people didn't have to live next door to black people, and they still exist. I mean, mm. Soweto is actually quite a middle-class place. You go to another one called Alex, which is right next to Santon, the sort of wealthiest square mile in Africa. And it's sort of – it's it's – I've been there, and it's, it's, it's quite a scary place. People live shoulder to shoulder in shacks. There are some sort of middle-class houses, but there's a lot of crime there as well. And um, you just can't escape that when there's so many people who are unemployed. You know, there's – I think it's among black South Africans, 47% are unemployed. And I heard a figure recently that it's more like 70% if you for, for youth. Mm. So, Ed, this is um, supposed to be a food podcast and yeah. I think you know, one thing we can say about food is that it is intertwined through every aspect of life, including yeah. politics and class and the economy. But yeah. what can you tell us about the way that restaurants and other food businesses have navigated the pandemic? Well, you know, it's been very similar to in Australia. Restaurants have pivoted to takeaways. They've had additional suffering because um, we've had um, periodic alcohol bans. So they haven't been able to supply alcohol or anything like that when they sit down, which is the current situation for them. Um, apparently over a 1,000 have closed in this country. In, in, in Cape Town right now, a lot of restaurants have just closed down completely because there's um, a lot of violence and shootings between taxi operators. So the taxis in South Africa are basically minibuses that um, take poor people to work, and they fight con continually over their turf. In Johannesburg, some of the nicest places, the sort of, you know, the kind of restaurants owned by a couple that does really nice food and has nice wine, many of those have closed. There's um, a lot of very large restaurants, the very big, glitzy, glamorous ones where you get sort of um, displays of champagne, they're sort of doing okay. But um, there's one particular one in Nelson Mandela Square, which is a new one, where they've decided to close completely during lockdown. And they also have done something interesting. They're um, ensuring that all their staff are going to be vaccinated, the ones that are eligible, eligible to be vaccinated, which is which is a pretty good thing because it's, mm. it's not, if everybody's vaccinated, we're all a bit safer. Um, yeah, it's it's sort of depressing in some ways you know you you have a nice wine bar that opens here there's a wine bar called public which came from cape town which closed and then a local celebrity maps um oh 
Mapagnani opened a burger bar there and that's just closed as well and so more people unemployed it's really tough for them at the moment and with the alcohol bans what's the reasoning behind those um well it's a bit of a wild west here so you get a lot of drunken drivers and a lot of drunken violence that includes stabbings so on a saturday night the hospitals are full of um people who are there because of drunkenness and um initially the alcohol industry was debating and saying well when they banned alcohol in the last march march in 2000 for the first lockdown the reason that um alcohol related injuries and admissions to hospitals went down was the curfew but it's been proven since that it's not it's just drunk people clog hospitals unfortunately Right, um, so it's just part of an effort to keep the hospitals available for yeah. other, other like COVID-related needs. Yeah, exactly. They want to keep them open for COVID because they're full of people um, who need help for that. And that's why we have the lockdowns too. It's very different to Australia where you've got very few cases where the lockdowns are to prevent the spread. Here it's really to take the pressure off hospitals. As a regular guy um, in a in a house, like have you got you can't buy alcohol, but you're allowed to drink in your own in the privacy of your own home. Yeah, yeah you can't buy alcohol and you can't transport it. Now, a lot of restaurants have also, I mean, some of them have been um, illegally selling their stock, and other ones they've used the old teapot technique, where you know your your, your teapots full of wine or beer or something. To, to, to circumvent that. And how is that? Is that policed? Um, policing here is pretty poor. I mean, the, um, police, police here take a lot of bribes. They call it a cold drink. And the, the amount you pay for a bribe will depend on whether you're black or white. You know, if you're a black person and get stopped for something, it could be 20 rand, which is $2. If you're white, it could be 10 times more. And so there have been places that have been closed down for that, and there have been places that have been closed down for um, not keeping to the COVID regulations in terms of social distancing, mask wearing, and hand washing, but not that many. So, Ed, you know, there's probably a few, at least three countries in the world that you could be living in. Um, yeah. What has uh, taken you to, to South Africa and what's made you stay? Um, you know, it's a wonderful country um, to, to visit. But, um, my partner, Pam, her father was ill and my mother was getting old so, in England, so I thought it would be a good place to be close to home, um, which it turned out um, it doesn't really matter now because you can't travel. My mother died last year. I couldn't travel to see her or go to the funeral. My stepfather was 90 last weekend. I couldn't go and see him. I won't be able to go to my mother's memorial service in September. But, you know, this country, it's got great weather. You know, it might be minus two overnight, but it's going to be 20 today. And I like the people. So even in amongst all the things that you're describing, the personal tragedies and the societal mm. ones, you're still finding things to enjoy day to day. Yeah, I, I live an enormously privileged life. I live in a lovely house on a hill overlooking the city, which would be, would be the price of a one-bedroom flat in Melbourne. 
And, you know, it's, there's, there's things you can afford to do that you can't afford to do in Australia just because of the, the, the differences in the economy. They don't, you don't have a housing market like in Australia that's going crazy. So you can actually afford to live in your own home, for instance. Foods, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it, it's, it's a, I believe that it doesn't really matter where you live. You know, I come from the UK in the first place and spent nearly 20 years in Australia. It's about the things around you and the people around you. And nowadays you can still keep in touch thanks to the internet and social media. Yeah. And podcasts. And podcasts too, yeah. <laughs> so, Ed, let's completely change tack. Um, and I would yeah. love to talk about your blogging life when you were living in Melbourne. And mm. that's how I first encountered you. You were, yeah, yeah I mean, you were definitely one of the first food bloggers that was out there. Can you tell me um, about that time, that part of your life, what it was like? Yeah, well, you know, I was a full-time journalist then, but I was, you know, I, actually I fell into a deep depression. I was even hospitalized. And I started a food magazine. A, a um, psychologist I was seeing said, he seemed to be passionate about that. Um, why not do something? And it gave me an aim in life. But it didn't work out financially with advertising. In those days, I thought it was about, you know, writing some cool stuff, but it's not. It's about having a really good ad salesperson. So I flipped my content into a blog back in 2005. It was probably one of the first dozen or so blogs in, in, in the country. And as a result of that, I ended up writing a bit about food for, well, I got a column in the Herald Sun, wrote a bit for Gourmet Traveler, SBS Food and others. And the more I wrote about food, actually, the less money I earn because it's not as lucrative as financial journalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, think. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's you know, and that led me into then all the new social media sites that came along, from Facebook to Twitter and Instagram and things like that. Well, I, you know, I don't blog so much nowadays. I started blogging um, around South Africa in eighty wines. But at the time, also, I was, I was helping feed the homeless, and I felt I couldn't justify mentally blogging about expensive wines when there are these homeless people who can barely afford food or anything. So, you know, it's, my, my life's changed a lot. Um, it was a really... You know, it was a really sweet time in in food writing. That the start of the blogging, like there were tweet ups, and it was very yeah, personal. You know, Twitter was just, I guess, you know, expanding rapidly. But it, it was still, yeah. it, it, it was people, pretty starry eyed, wasn't it? It was. It was almost yeah. It was almost an idealistic time where you know people met up because they connected on their blogs. People would send food parcels from Korea or America, and you'd swap different foods. Um, and we, we did have a lot of meetups. Um, we had the food blogs conference, which I, I, I sort of helped set up. It was a fun time, but you know, people. Are, I think the fragmentation of blogging into all the different social media vehicles has sort of meant that, that you, you've got the influencers, and it, it sort of changed. It's less personal than it was. Yeah, that's true. Because I think Instagram wasn't around. I, I guess there wasn't. It wasn't as mm. intensely visual as it's become. It's. Mm. It was. It was quite text based, wasn't it? And um, it I mean, people people were taking photos, but it wasn't. It wasn't like it is yeah. now in that regard. 
Um, it was also held back by technology because the iPhone sort of came late in the blogging scene as well. And, you know, even then, the first ones, the, the, the cameras weren't great. They weren't nothing like the ones today. So you had to have a sort of SLR and the skills to use that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of uploading. Yeah. But even in those days, you used to find a lot of wannabes would come along and they'd tell you, that, oh, we're launching our blog next month. You know, they'd got a proper designer to do it, which, which what blogging wasn't about. You know, it was like the emergence of the first wannabe influencers. Um, and what stopped you sort of what took you away from it? You know, there's when you're writing full time, it, there's a lot of pressure when you have to write something in your spare time. It's hard. Then I just sort of got over it. I got over the race to go to new restaurants and things. And um, yeah, it became less meaningful. But I, I suppose a pivotal point was my, my partner, Pam started a fitness studio which didn't work out and when we closed it we thought we'd go away for a month or two and um then her gig with a big bank in the uk um was delayed so we ended up traveling for nine months which is when we decided to move to south africa we, we spent a lot of time we spent about a month in oh, a month or two in spain um a month in morocco um a month in portugal time in the uk and we realized that we really loved australia that there are other places in the world so we came to south africa and we spent a month in johannesburg and cape town to decide where we would live because her father was very ill at that point with dementia and we decided johannesburg so we came home in january rented out pam's place put my place on the market and um moved there may four years ago mm. One thing that's I found really interesting in the past year in food media is that newsletters have really come to the fore and to me it has the same similar feeling to when blogging arose in the mid noughties where people are writing these really I guess lo-fi newsletters to a subscriber base sometimes there's a little bit of income attached to it with a patreon or a subscription whatever it is but it just does have a bit of that frontier feeling of the early blogs have you encountered any of those? Yeah, there are many. And, you know, in blogging too, there, there, there were apps and things that meant you could your blog could become a newsletter and people subscribe to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in food in particular, wine, it's given people who are normally marginalized voices, you know, um, people of color, um, people who, who, who wouldn't traditionally be picked up by the media. I mean, the same happened in, in, in blogging in the early days. You'd find people from all sorts of backgrounds, a lot of Asian bloggers, Indian, people from all over the place. And it's actually made a richer environment. And, yeah. you know, some of them are making good money from it thanks to some of these new newsletters where you can, you know, um, easily set up a s subscription. Yeah, well, I hope they are. I mean, I know that, you know, working in – traditional media as a journalist there was uh, there was a lot of um a bit of angst about the blogging community and in, you know influencers and instagrammers and all that kind of stuff but i have to say i always really welcomed it because um i loved mm. yeah i loved different voices and i also the thought it was a good opportunity for me to rethink about you know what is it that i can bring to it how can i differentiate what i do um so yeah i think it's 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 good. It's like having more people on the playing field just um, encourages everybody to 
to find what it is that they really want to do and sort of, yeah, I guess define what they can offer. Well, it really added to the diversity. If you look at the food scene in Melbourne or Australia, generally, you know, the people who've become the food reviewers are there for life almost, and they tend to be middle-aged men. And so if you're looking at someone reviewing, you know, one of the many Asian restaurants, Chinese or Japanese, it's actually more interesting to get someone from that background to talk about what the food is there. And, like, if you go to Chinese restaurants, there's a lot of um, off-menu items that you'd never have as a as a Westerner. And so when we had blog meetup, meetups or things, or when you read some of the story, it was interesting to find out what they would eat. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, that's so great. I remember those blogs where it'd be like, yeah, six people that obviously had dinner together at a restaurant and everyone mm. wrote their blog. Yeah. Oh, my God, I feel so nostalgic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it became very intense because everybody was racing to get to the, you know, to review something first. I remember one of the blog pieces I wrote that I particularly liked was the first night at Lau's Family Kitchen. And I felt it was like, you know, not everything was going right, but it was like the sort of first night sort of, um, theatre review, which it was, of course, because restaurants are theatre. Mm. Uh, beautiful Laos. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah, a, a restaurant that we, we've we said goodbye to this year, but, yeah, yeah. you were yeah, there right at the many. start. Yeah. yeah. So, Ed, you know, from your perspective in South Africa, but obviously still keeping a pretty close eye on what's happening in Australia mm. and Australian hospitality, how do mm. you, uh, what's your what's your perspective on the way things are shaking down here? Look, it seems like it's all going to be for the better, ultimately. There's a lot of marginal restaurants, which probably weren't fun for people to run because they really weren't making any money. And it wasn't fun for a lot of staff to work in these places because of the hours they're expected to work and the unpaid overtime. It seems now that's been sorted out with new um, wage conditions. And after a shakeout, I suspect the sector will be healthier. But, you know, I'm, I'm quite jealous of it because of the diversity of food you have in Australia, which you just don't have here. What are you missing out on? Well, for instance, sushi. It normally seems to be, you know, pretty pedestrian with mayonnaise squirted on top. <laughs> Asian food. You know, I, I find myself cooking a lot rather than going out now because of COVID. You know, I'll, I'll sort of tap into the recipes of Tony Tan or someone like that or David Thompson because you can get some of the ingredients. You just find you don't get it in restaurants here. And partly it's because Australians travel so much. And you have, you know, even young chefs have the economic wherewithal to travel to London or wherever to do a stage and learn about the food of Noma or whatever other restaurant. Whereas people don't have the money to travel as much here. And if you look at the people working in the kitchens, you'll find a lot of them are black people, a lot of them working in the restaurants are black people. They don't, they're, they're not even going to be able to afford the wine that they would serve or know much about it. It's not like Australia where you have these intense professionals who are really into this particular type of wine or something like that and that passion. It's a, it's a job because people are trying to survive. Mm. Yeah. It, yeah, it's quite different. Yeah, um, no, I, miss, I miss the scene a lot in Australia. Well, or from travelling abroad too. Yeah. Yes, well, we all miss travelling as well. We do, um, yeah. 
Yeah, hopefully next year we'll be able to, you know, have a little tweet up. Um, Where do you think it'll go first? uh, Well, I don't know. The two countries, as you asked me, that just popped into my mind were Italy and Japan. Um, Yeah. But... I don't know. I've got ailing in-laws in England that I definitely mm-hmm. need to see. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I'd go anywhere. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. Where would you yeah, go? Yeah. Well, definitely England because uh, I'd like to see my family visit my mother's grave. Um, I spent two years ago, I spent about a month in Rome, so I have great memories. I'd love to go back there. But my, my sister's husband's been made the naval attaché to the British Embassy in um, Japan. He, they're, they're moving there next southern winter. So I think Japan will be on the agenda too. Oh, I might run into you in a sushi bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Ed, thank you so much for sharing your Johannesburg perspective with us today. I think it's, um, mm. yeah, it's, it's really... I think, you know, we're going through a really tough time this winter in Australia and a lot of Mm. hospitality businesses and workers are really Mm. suffering. It's not easy, but um, we don't have riots in the street and we don't have the extreme social dislocation that uh, Mm. you're going through in in South Africa. So I think we do have a lot to be grateful for. Um, But, yeah, I really wish you all the best for getting through the next weeks, months and Mm. and years. And, um, yeah, I hope that we can... See you soon. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Danny. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.